Is the manager a good guy or a bad guy? What about the rich employer? Or the, man, or the, 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 the merchants? Are, are they supposed to be role models? Metaphors? What is going on in this weird story? All right, uh, TLDR, the spoiler alert. Um, we aren't exactly sure either, and we're not promising you an answer to that question. <laughs> Actually, we're promising we won't give you an answer to that <laughs> That's question. That's right, because nobody seems to be sure. Commentators for 1,900 years have been trying to figure this parable out, and they're all over the place about what it means. And so instead, I, we're going to dig in and, ex- and see how it happened and why it is that we're confused. First, we're, we're going to look at some historical context uh, about the social strata of the first century uh, and, and Jesus' audience. Who, who was it Jesus was talking to the first time he shared this story? He was on his way from Galilee to Jerusalem, and he was probably speaking to a, a reasonable cross-section of people of Galilee and Judea, 80 to 90 percent of whom were desperately poor subsistence farmers. They were either hard scrabble farmers on their own ancestral piece of land, or they were tenant farmers growing grain or cash crops for a large wealthy landowner. The crops were meager. They were taxed heavily by both Rome and Jerusalem. And most tenant farmers and most uh, ancestral farmers were heavily in debt to wealthier folks so that they were in constant danger of losing their farm to a wealthy landowner. And the characters that Jesus talks about... The rich man would have been part of the urban elite, probably the top one or two percent of the population in those days. The manager is a member of the next level, the folks who manage the wealth of the urban elite. His job was to collect taxes from the folks who owned, who owed money to his master and siphon a little off the top to keep himself comfortable maybe in the top four or five percent of that society. And even the business folk who are in this parable, given the size of their debts, are people who are pretty well off in those days. So the original peasant audience of this parable, when they first heard this story being told, they would have interpreted all the characters in the parable as greedy, rapacious, and reprehensible human beings. Think Breaking Bad, Bible edition. And then another important reality of that culture was what's called the honor-shame culture. Honor or saving face, one's reputation was the most important currency of that day, more important even than financial currency in that day. If you were shamed, it required vengeance. There was a kind of social debt amongst people. Who owed who a favor? And how do you get, how do you curry reputation? And who are you, who do you have allegiance to? Who do you get even with if you need to? Think the Godfather. Bible Bible edition. edition. Right. 
So Jesus begins this parable. There was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this manager was squandering his property. All right, notice here, the rich man is told that his manager has been cheating on him. In an honor-shame culture, it really doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Reputation is everything. And if the rumors say that he can't control his underlings... The rich man loses face, and that means he loses business, and he loses reputation. So he immediately fires the discredited manager. It's not unlike what happens on social media in Mm. our day, where you get dragged through the mud and hung out to dry almost regardless. So how does our manager respond, whether he's innocent or whether he's not innocent? He quickly and ingeniously figures out how to turn this to his favor. We're imagining what's going on in his head. Okay, my job is gone, and I have a particular lifestyle to which I am accustomed. Physical labor is out of the question. Begging would be shameful. How do I protect my delicate behind? I got it. The news of my firing will not get to people until tomorrow. The internet has not been invented yet. So I'm still effectively manager for the rest of the day. And I've got clients who owe my boss, Mr. Big, a lot of money. So maybe I can get them to owe me a few favors that I can cash in when things get rough. So he arranges a power breakfast with Rosa, the local pizza baron. Hey, Rosa! Who loves you, baby? How much do you owe Mr. Big? Uh, I owe him 500 gallons of olive oil. And I tell you, between the rent in Harvard Square and the cost of mozzarella, I may never have naked sell enough slices to pay him back. Uh, I hear you, my dear friend. And even more so, so does my wonderful boss, Mr. Big. Really? I am pleased to announce to you that Mr. Big is such a lovely, kind-hearted, and generous person that he has decided to give you an impromptu 50% discount on what you owe him. Now you only owe him for 250 gallons of olive oil. Is that an offer you can't refuse or what? It's still a lot of slices, but I'll take it. Who loves you, baby? Don't forget me. Then the manager has a power lunch with the town baker, to whom he gives the good news that thanks to the magnanimous largesse of Mr. Big, a thousand pounds of wheat has magically disappeared from his bill. Our manager works hard and fast. And by the end of the day, he's secured enough goodwill from his boss's debtors to keep him comfy for the foreseeable future, and he's made Mr. Big look like a beneficent and civic-minded philanthropist, at least in the eyes of the people who owe him money. But then, 
We need a note. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Mr. Big finds out about the whole con game that our manager has concocted to save his assets and confronts him. The jig is up. And I can imagine those, those peasant farmers waiting to hear what's going to happen. And then Jesus delivers this punchline that the rich man commends his manager for being so shrewd in the way he manages his debts. Wait, what? Commends him even though he's lost a whole pile of cash because of what this manager's done? Wait, what? Why? Is it that Mr. Big is uh, impressed with this man's creativity and figures, well, better creative than not? Is it because he's happy that the folks who owe him money now also feel like they owe him a, fa a favor, which helps to redeem him in that honor-shame culture? We don't really know. I do suspect that those first hearers, those hard-scrabble farmers, for whom all of these characters were crooks, I think they would have been surprised, and I can imagine them all laughing reveling in the way this manager gets fired, and then also reveling in the way that he tries to turn the fortune on his boss and the eagerness of these merchants to quickly write down their debts. All these farmers are in debt too, up to their eyeballs. They're scrambling to stay ahead of managers like this and to a story that, and so for a story that has any debt forgiveness at all, seems like it's pretty good news even if it's only done to save the manager's butt. Now this amazing punchline in verse 8, most scholars agree, is the original end of the parable that Jesus told. All by itself, even ending there, it's a really weird story. It's not entirely clear what the point is, except maybe that God appreciates creativity or that God can work even with the creativity of scoundrels, if necessary, to do some good, like debt relief in the world. The U.S. Congress, even. Even. But the thing is, <laughs> Luke doesn't end the story there. The story has three more punchlines, and none of them agree. Wait, what? You know, the only way that this makes sense to us, and we're indebted to Robert Capon for this image, is that when Luke was writing the Gospels, in the, around the, his Gospel, around the year 80, about 50 years after Jesus' life, we imagine him having a shoebox full of index cards. We imagine this because we're old. <laughs> we're analog people. We learned to write term papers before the internet. But the, Luke had a list of Jesus' parables, Jesus, stories about Jesus, sayings Jesus had made, and he had them all together, and he was putting them in some kind of order to make a gospel. He also had Mark's gospel in front of him right. and used that as a model, but he had a whole lot of extra sayings that Mark didn't have. That's right. Where to put them? And so we imagine Luke putting in this parable that I'm not clear he understood, but he knew that it was one of Jesus' parables, so he put it in. And then he had these three other pithy sayings about our relationship with money, 
And so he decided to put those in after Jesus' parable as well. So verse 9 is from one of those index cards. And it becomes punchline number two. Make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Okay, I have no idea about what this is about at all. None whatsoever. And as far as I can tell, I have yet to read a satisfying commentary about this. So we're just, I don't do this often, but we're kind of going to Push it aside. That's right. Maybe another sermon some other time. Yeah, another inspiration. So that's punchline two. And then verses 10 through 12 are punchline number three. Whoever is faithful in a little is faithful in much. And so don't be unfaithful even with dishonest wealth, Luke says. On its own, it's true enough. It's good advice for faithful living but it does seem like it directly contradicts the story that we've just read where the manager was commended for being unfaithful. It's almost as though in light of this odd story, Luke feels like he needs to tack something on the end to help people know that it really is important for them to be honest, even despite the story they've just read. Need a more orthodox corrective at the end. And then verse 13 is punchline number four. You can't serve two masters. You can't serve both God and money. And now again, this feels like it's a corrective to the parable. It is a, it's a true statement. And those of us who have struggled to live faithfully in a capitalist society, serving God and serving mammon is a constant struggle. But it also doesn't really go with the story. It, it sure seems like Luke had, 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 had this index card, and he really needed to put it somewhere, and he figured that, well, we're talking a lot about money here, uh, so I'll, I'll chunk it in here at the end of the parable. Now, the verse alone is wonderful and pregnant and full of meaning and is plenty for a sermon all on its own, and I've preached that sermon several times over the years. But it just seems a little incongruous to be stuck after the end of this weird parable. So if after these four punchlines, you feel like you have spiritual and exegetical whiplash, you're not alone. Even with this explanation of how we think this maybe came together, we still don't know exactly what to do with this parable or any of the pieces that come after it or exactly what it means for us today. Still, and this might be why Luke brought these disparate sayings together here, is there are important themes in this story, crucial themes, that apply to our faith, that occur throughout Holy Scripture. For one, the forgiveness of debts, a central part of Jesus' ministry and his preaching, monetary debt, social debt, even spiritual debt. That's a theme ever since the first books of the Hebrew Scripture. Jesus put it right in the middle of the prayer that we share every Sunday. 
Forgive us our debts as we forget, forgive our debtors. We Methodists change it to trespasses, but the Greek is debt. God is all about setting people free from all forms of bondage. When Jesus healed people, he not only said, your faith has healed you, he also said, your sins are forgiven. You are no longer in debt to an accountant God who measures sins. You have a God who forgives debt and offers you freedom and liberation. Which is one of the reasons we're here this morning. Me, you, all of us, we may have very different lots in life and certainly different from that, those first century listeners, but at some level in our lives, we're all hard scrabble farmers mm. trying to figure out how to eke an existence in a complicated and difficult world. We may not understand everything Jesus says, but we do understand that our sins are forgiven. We've, we're here because we've experienced a grace so unexpected and freeing that the only thing we can think to call it is amazing grace. We can't explain it exactly, but we know that we're loved more deeply than we ever thought possible. And we find ourselves able to love others more deeply than we ever thought possible. So in light of that amazing grace that we experience from the cross, maybe we don't have to explain it. Wait, what? I thought that's what preachers did. <laughs> that's our job. Well, <laughs> uh, maybe instead of explaining, we can just give thanks for this incredible experience of being swooped up and swept up by the love of God that moves in these astounding and unexpected ways. And by a Savior who went all the way to the cross to prove God's love. By a God who met that human cruelty with resurrection and a hope that cannot be overcome. The ultimate creative response. The ultimate creative response. That sudden, surprising reversal of expectation is at the core of our faith, and it's at the core of every parable that Jesus shares. We don't have to understand all of it. We're just asked to embrace it and live in the freedom of this amazing grace that we've experienced in the beguiling and sometimes inscrutable rabbi from Nazareth, in whose name we gather and in whose name we are sent out into the world. And so even as confused as we might be, we'll share together in the hymn, Take My Life and Let It Be. It's number 399 in your hymnal.